0: Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. The Onyx Hunt app is your premier GPS hunting app, your number one hunting app for turning your mobile phone or computer into a working gps unit so the onyx hunt app is now running in 3d so three-dimensional for iphones and on the computer they don't have the android done yet but the beta version is done for iphones and on the the web map it's really cool to be able to use um i've been really liking it here for rifle season um being able to check out some like some hidden benches that are tough to tell with regular topography lines, some things like that. So head over to onxmaps.com and if you use the coupon code EMW, you can save yourself 20% off of the app. And actually, you might be able to still catch uh, 30% off the app by using... The code THANKS30 for Thanksgiving. By the time you listen to this, it might be gone already, but you can always use EMW for 20% off. So, check that out over at onxmaps.com. Tethered. So, Tethered has been developing the most lightweight mobile hunting gear for the saddle hunting community for a few years now. And I've been hunting out of a saddle almost exclusively for two years now and it's been an incredible experience well, tethered has been just developing the, the safest lightest weight gear including the the equipment that i like to use i use the, the phantom saddle which has so many different comfort adjustments as well as the predator platform those two pieces of equipment are with me just about all the time when i'm hunting so lightweight you don't even know it's there and You can get in just about any tree. So head over to tetherednation.com and check out the the saddle hunting gear and other gear that they have, as well as just learn about saddle hunting. So tetherednation.com. And last but not least, the University of Elk Hunting. So Corey Jacobson and Elk 101 want to put together the most fully comprehensive elk hunting learning course available and that's called the University of Elk Hunting. So the course goes through a ton of different modules to help increase your elk hunting success. So it's the most comprehensive course and and complete resource from beginning to end, from the research stage, which if you're planning a hunt in 2021, you might want to start looking now to start getting everything ready. It has all of that information there and much more. You get a bunch of discounts from partners, elk hunting gear. You'll pay for yourself just in pay for the course just in, in savings on gear uh, getting ready for your hunt. So head over to elk101.com and if you use the coupon code East Meets West, you'll save yourself 20% off of that as well. All right. So uh, Pennsylvania rifle season opened up here, uh, the gun season. Opened up here on Saturday, and this was the first year to have Sunday hunting in the first weekend, which is was weird, but uh, it was it was awesome. It's a really monumental time for um, for us in Pennsylvania. People in other states are probably thinking like, geez, that's crazy that you don't have that," but we don't. Well, we didn't, and now we have three days, which was uh, the last sunday and archery season and then sunday and bear season and now here in rifle deer season um so it was great i got to get out and enjoy it i spent saturday sunday and part of monday which is i'm recording us today um getting to hunt and so uh the first day I'm trying to think saw a few deer in the morning i was set up on a thick like hemlock side hill I'm trying to get out I knew there's gonna be a ton of pressure uh, mostly on the tops and some from the bottom so I tried to get in an area where I couldn't really see very far but I didn't think other people would be at and I didn't see anybody else Um, I did hear some shooting around me but um, ended up like I said I sat all day saw some deer um, nothing no bucks that at least I, I could see there was one deer I couldn't tell what it was but other than that, it was um, it was a good good spot. I figured would be kind of like their safe zone escape route, and just sat foot all day, so I didn't get up and push AD around other people. I uh, went right back into that area Sunday morning, and I have a camera there. Actually, it's on a signpost rub, but there's some trails that go through there, and. Just in the end of November here, I've been having some really good bucks and a specific deer that I've been hunting. He's been using this and been daylight active a couple times in the last week, which is just was crazy to me because he hasn't been really all year. But um so I know it's just a matter of time if I sit there that I that I have a chance seeing him. Well, Sunday morning, um just it was cracking daylight, so it was it was actually fifteen minutes past legal shooting light, but in those hemlocks still so dark. And I saw the flashy antlers come through and uh, and saw the body of the deer and pulled up my gun and it was a really nice buck. And so I was getting I started looking through my scope and it was fogged up. So because I I had it sitting there um against me and I had, so it was like warm and it was cold and, and created some fogging going on so i hurried up and wiped it off and pulled it up deer still moving through probably heading back to bed and he hit what i thought was a little I, I i was panicked a little bit when i fogged the scope so i put i pulled it up he hit a little opening and just stopped there and it was just you know all i could see was essentially his vitals at that point and i squeezed one off And deer ran. So I was like, you know, what happened? Did I hit him? You know, I was like, there's no way I could have missed him. It was was like 65 yards, maybe 60 yards. And so I went right down there afterwards. Because I was like, I'm shooting him with 300 wind mag, which might be a little bit overgun. But uh, usually they're not going very far if that's the ticket. So, And I knew that it was either... A kill shot or nothing by what I had, and I went down there, no blood, no hair, and a bullet in a tree. So I uh, I didn't realize it was thicker than I thought because it was still kind of low light, and I hit a bunch of branches. Well, not probably a bunch. Probably hit one of them, but uh, you could see where where the bullet went and and hit a tree, then behind it, and just made me sick sick to my stomach about it but uh, I didn't hit him which was I, I guess the, the good part about it but um, the, the pr- where I was looking back at it you know is I'm kind of kind of mad at myself for not being a little bit more patient because another five feet and he would have hit a big opening that was definitely wide open but at the same time I had the shot I had the opportunity it looked clear and just wasn't so I don't know I guess, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty with it, but, um, I don't know. It, it was, it kind of, it sucked though. I was, I was not, uh, wasn't super excited about it. So after that, um, I went back and I sat there a little bit longer, saw a few more deer and then just decided to go and, and check some trail cameras that I had there, more or less just still hunting and checking cameras as I was going, just, Just to see what's been going on since I haven't checked them since some of them since Halloween, and so there's this. This is what this is what hurts. Okay, so you know how trail cameras can be a really good thing and they can also be really bad at the same time. And what I mean is, I went and checked his camera when Justin was here filming me on November 10th. We're going to hunt this tree that I hunted on October 30th, and we're going to hunt it. And decided to change it up and move to a different, move to a different one right across the the creek. So I was in a creek bottom, and but it was all thick hemlocks. And so we moved 120 yards away, just across the creek on the other side, and got set up. We sat all day and never saw a deer. And so I went on the way in and out. We walked past this camera that where I was originally going to sit. But I never checked it. I just, we just went in and I was like, you know, I, I just didn't check it. So I checked it now and in between the time when Justin and I walked in in the morning and when we came out of dark at 8.47 a.m., the the big deer that I had the encounter with, if you remember a few weeks ago on October 30th, we're on the ground where I had one of the biggest deer I've ever hunted at 15 yards and I didn't get a shot off. Well, he was there just flaunting himself, searching for does wide open. You can see the tree I'd be sitting in or we would be sitting in in the background. Um, he was there only 120 yards from us and we never saw him nothing because it's so thick and it's hard to hear with uh, with the, the creek there and with being all hemlocks, it's quiet walking anyways. We were that close yet so far. You know, it's looking back at it, it's, you know, we were pretty disgusted that day. I've not seen any deer, but that's not really atypical for uh, hunting in this this big woods region in Pennsylvania. Sometimes you know you just don't don't see them. But you know, it, this this season's been frustrating, but it's been really good at the same time. That never comes so close so many times, which I know you know being close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. But it, I've been so close to figuring out this single deer but just haven't been able to capitalize on it i'm not giving up yet um i i would i hope that he makes it through rifle season here he's a smart deer to get to this age um i have a shed from last year that's why i started hunting this area i don't know we'll see what happens uh, going forward here but uh that you know that sucked but anyways after i checked those cameras. Um, I made a move. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, last December, I did a podcast with Kip folks Kip uh, was the co-founder of Under Armour and now uh, started up a brewery called Big Truck Farms. And Kip has a big property here in Pennsylvania. He's got 7,000 acres in the mountains. And I'm talking some rugged country. And this is all big woods, um, timber. It's just an incredible piece of land, and he invited me to to go hunt it with him um, Sunday evening and into just Monday morning is all I could hunt. So I went up there and sat in a stand that was ready up there. Sat in a ladder stand, um, which was was kind of nice. Sat in that on uh, Sunday evening, saw a spike in two does, and then and then I hunted it in this morning, which is Monday morning. And just off the ground it was pouring down rain all day. I hunted from daylight till noon until I had to come home and, and do some work here for the podcast and ship some orders. But I, I hunted till then and I saw two small bucks and that was it. But it's funny because there's this thing with, you know, public land, private land, and, you know, what's tougher, what's harder. And it, uh, you know, for me, just looking at this property and, and, you know, hunting it and talking with Kip and some other people that were there hunting it, which, so it doesn't, the property doesn't get a ton of pressure. I mean, there was, I don't know, eight or nine guys in camp that were hunting it. Um, so it does get some pressure, but over 7,000 acres, you know, not all of it can be touched, not even close, but, uh, it's, I don't really think it's any harder than it is. And, you know, a lot of public land spots, you know, I mean, I, I can get to areas where, and when I say this, you know, take this with a grain of salt. I'm not saying everywhere, Um, but, you know, there's a lot of areas I go to on public land that I don't have as much pressure as I have hunting different pieces of private land. And, you know, it's all dependent on the area, but this was just steep, nasty country and those bucks are just as smart you, you know maybe you know maybe you get a little bit of better age structure you know you know maybe some bigger deer that way I'm sure of that but like as far as the actual the hunt itself for them I think it's difficult no matter what um, so that that was just an interesting thing I'd like to dive into that a little bit deeper some point but it, um, it was an awesome experience hunting a new place like that. Just kind of, you know, after I've been going so hard for this, you know, one deer and everything and hunting kind of the same area. To kind of take off and, and do something a little bit different was was a lot of fun. I can't thank Kip enough for, you know, inviting me there and, you know, getting to hang out and, and everything. And it was just uh, a solid crew there to to spend, you know, hunting some Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania mountain bucks there on a, you know, giant piece of private land. So anyways, that's how my seasons went to date here. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to releasing this podcast here, um, for you to listen to with how blood as you know, we're getting some snow in here in Pennsylvania. I love snow and rifle season. That's get on a track and go, and you'll be able to hear how who's, incredibly successful with it talk about some experiences some stories some things to be able to learn from when it comes to tracking deer anywhere in the northeast and really you know even beyond these tactics can be used so i hope you enjoy that and hope everyone had a happy thanksgiving and good luck if you're still grinding all right we're live and i'm on the podcast tonight with uh a guy that's coming all the way from northern, the northeastern region, as far up there as you can get in the United States. Hal Blood from Maine. How are you doing, Hal?
0: I'm doing great. And you? Uh,
1: I I can't complain. It's uh it's October here in Pennsylvania. It's a beautiful time to be outside, and uh, there's yeah, I got nothing to complain about. That's for sure. What
0: else? Likewise, it was spitting was spitting snow here today. Really. So my neck's starting to swell up.
1: <laughs> is, that, uh, is that normal to have snow in October up there? Or I guess this early in October?
0: Oh, yeah. We have snow in October quite frequently. Okay. I've seen it the first week of October. I've seen a foot of snow during moose seasons in first week of October.
1: Wow. is that? Um, you were telling me a little bit before we started recording here that um, you're doing a little bit of... Uh, guiding some some moose hunting currently up there is at the time uh, just for anyone listening the time recording this is early october so you were saying that you were doing some uh some moose hunting
0: yeah maine's first moose hunt is uh basically it's it's the starts the last monday in september and we have a week for that hunt and then Generally, it skips a week, and the next hunt is a Monday after uh, Columbus Day, so this year there's a week in between, which is this week here, so Monday starts the second hunt, which is another bull hunt, and then they have a cow hunt the last week of October, so there's basically like three seasons, and then they, down in the coastal zones, they do some There's some others. They can hunt all during November, but ain't many moose down there. That's just kind of, if you saw one, if you had a permit and saw one in deer season, you could get it.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, So I I guess that. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there before, before we start going a little bit into your, some of your guiding stuff there, do you want to give a little bit of background on who you are, how, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of the listeners here being, you know, big woods hunters throughout these coasts have heard of you and, 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 uh, have, you know, learned and hopefully maybe read some of your books, stuff like that. So would you give a little background on yourself?
0: Uh, how far back you want to go? Cause I'm pretty old.
1: <laughs> well, let's, let's give the, the cliff notes version of this, uh, of, of your life. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. Well, I've been, I mean, I started deer hunting with my father when I was, a, you know, a little kid, you know, and, and down in Southern Maine, there wasn't very many deer when I was growing up back in the sixties. And, uh, I shot my first deer when I was 12, Another one I was 13. And then I started hunting down east a little bit at the Relatives Hunting Lodge. And then I went in the Marine Corps for four years. And, and uh, when I got out, I had to get a job. And the only vacation pick I could get for that following year was the first week of November. And at the time, I didn't have any seniority and all the other I didn't couldn't get a November week off except that first week. And it was opened a week early up in the Northern zone, what they call basically the Northern half of Maine or what we call the big woods up in here. So I said, well, I used to come fishing up here. So I said, I'm going to, there was deer. So I'm going deer hunting up there. That's basically how my big woods hunt started. I, talked my father into going and we had a little tag along camper that popped up and about froze to death. And I shot a spike horn the first year up here, but just from that one week up North, it was hard for me to hunt down in Southern Maine anymore. So I continued coming up for a week or so, uh, uh, it was basically through the eighties and started, uh, my father-in-law was a lobster catcher and I started that with him and then I bought my own boat, went on my own, but I always wanted to get up here and, you know, make my living in the outdoors, so to speak, following the, you know, chasing the dream or whatever. So started, uh, in the well, it was basically late 80s, right around 1990. Started building a set of sporting camps and guide business and dragged my wife up here. And that's when it kind of began more for guiding. And, and uh, you know, I deer hunted in between the guiding. I had to guide to make the living and shot deer in between. And I guess I got good at killing the big ones, the ones over here in Maine, probably I, people didn't know that it's kind of, there's a, there's, there's a club that's called the biggest bucks in Maine club. And if you, you shoot a buck that dress weight is over 200 pounds, you get like a patch or something for it. It's kind of like a, I guess people think of it as like an elite type club, because it's, you know, kind of hard to get in that club to build one that dresses over 200. And, and most of those are shot in northern Maine. Uh, Southern Maine is a little, you know, they're not quite as many, nowhere near, I guess, as many big ones, big-bodied ones, you know. People up here hunt for big bodies. They're not thinking about rack size and score and all that. Quite frankly, you're probably never going to see much of the rack till you Shoot them and walk up to them, you know, and that's the nature of hunting this way. But once I started doing it, lost interest in hunting anywhere else, and that was it. And then uh, throughout the guiding, uh, some of my clients would and guests at the lodge would tell me I ought to write a book about the stuff. I'd be telling stories, and I go, "You got to write a book about this stuff." So I did. That was, I think, in 2004. I wrote my first book. Called hunting big woods bucks, and uh, then from then on, uh, my my business partner now, Chris, he was him and a friend of his were my first two guided deer hunting clients, and we just became friends. And Chris thought it'd be a good idea if we, you know, tried to capture on film the stuff I wrote in the book. And so that's what we start. That's how basically the Big Woods Bucks business end of it started, and it started slow because I just, you know, I had to do it in between guiding, and sometimes we'd film a client, sometimes we'd film me, and it was slow going for a lot of years, and and then uh, started building pretty good momentum here in the last oh eight, ten years. I wrote another book, a volume two, and then since then I've written another one. Basically, I put together stories. It's 25 stories of tracking bucks here in the big woods and, you know, my hunts, my stories from deer that I've killed. And and, uh, just uh, the goal really was to teach people how to do it because what I found a long time ago in my outfitting business was people either loved it or they hated it. There was like no in-between about coming and hunting here in the big woods. Some people, we'd have guests that would leave by Wednesday, middle of the week. It just wasn't their cup of tea. Just the woods were too big. They didn't see enough deer. Whatever it was, they didn't like it. And then other people, they didn't care how many deer they saw. They just loved the woods and not ever seeing any hunters and quiet and solitude and and the, that chance to kill a once-in-a-lifetime buck and the, they get hooked on it and they love it and they do it year after year and and obviously you know if you keep at it you'll get better at it and uh that's just kind of how it goes so we just the business kind of revolves now around you know entertaining people but educating them as well about you know how to hunt this way and do better and get better and you know it doesn't have to be just in maine but you know you got big woods in northern pennsylvania and adirondacks and and you know across the northern tier the midwest you know the up and wisconsin minnesota there's there's big woods in all those places we've actually got a pretty good following out there that that uh you know are learning from us and putting it to use and we have guests at the, at the lodge now, you know, I've, it's a, we've got an outfit aside of it. I sold my other outfit in business and I started another one last year associated with Bigwood. So it's Big outfit is, and it's mainly, it's mainly for the deer hunting end of it. And the team members and, and that are guides, are guiding hunters. And we take people on American plan hunts, you know, and, and it's just a good time.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. I uh, it, it's, it's funny. I mean, I came across, I think it was your YouTube channel first, the Big Woods Bucks YouTube channel a while ago it, because, you know, there's not a whole lot of information out there on hunting big woods or anything like that for whitetails. There's so much for farm country and that's everything that you ever read or do anything about. So when I came across your channel, I was extremely interested in, and in also a lot of your style with with tracking deer is something that my grandfather had is told me a ton of stories about at our hunting camp uh, here in, in northern Pennsylvania where I live and and it just you so the stuff that you were putting out your videos and stuff really resonated you know with me and then and, and also your, then later on found you started your podcast and everything and uh, just a, a ton of very good information and and know, one of my goals is to hunt more places you know throughout the northeast you know i mean i'm from pennsylvania i've hunted here and i've hunted you know southern ohio and some other different places for whitetails here but i've never went up into that northeast corner there and i i definitely want to do that at some point so would you would you want to give a little bit of a background for the listeners on what it kind of looks like as far as the, the terrain and the habitat and the places that you're hunting there in, in Northern Maine?
0: Well, where I hunt it's and live, it's, it's uh mountainous it's, it's right up on the Quebec border and the mountains separate Quebec from Maine. It's on the jagged part. If you looked at like kind of Northwestern Maine and, it's i guess you'd consider it the northern end of the appalachian mountains i guess but it but northern maine's very diverse when you get above here it turns into uh, you know more rolling ridges ro- you know there's a scattered decent sized mountain here and there and then the further north you go it flattens out into you know more low ground with with ridges, low ridges and stuff. So it's pretty, it's pretty diverse, you know, up in this neck of the woods as far as that goes. And uh, it's the, it's what they call a, the whole northern half of Maine is what they call a a boreal forest, a spruce fir forest. Uh, A lot of people call them pines, but they're not really pines. There's no, there is pine trees here, but it's spruce fir mainly and uh, swamps is mountain swamps. I mean, you name it, it's logging, you know, it's all commercial Timberland for logging and, you know, that provides some access to get in, you know, to get into places and, and, uh, but Maine is different than most states where, whereas it's although it's private land most of it timber company land it's open use in other words you've got access to millions of acres to hunt in northern maine you know you know what i mean it's just the landowners allow access and and uh, so it it really makes for you know unique hunting up here you know you're not you're not limited to forty acre woodlaw to your lease of two hundred acres and things like that, you know, it's just you can go you can you can roam anywhere, so that's why I call it the big woods, you know, it's just as big, it's as big as you want it to be.
1: Yeah. So, do, do you have much as far as you know your typical public land like national forest, state forest type stuff, or is it mostly the the private timber company properties that allow public hunting?
0: Yeah, it's mostly it's mostly uh, timber company land. There's a, there is a state park in Maine. There's no national forest. There's a state. There is a little bit of national forest. It's mostly in New Hampshire. It's right on the border there. That's a White Mountain National Forest, but and that's open to hunting too. But um, and then there's a state park in Maine. And then there is some public land. You know what they call you know public land like any other state. That's but it's not very much. You know it's a little bit here and a little bit there. Mm-hmm. And it's really it's really no different than it's no different than, than hunting on the timber company land. You know, you wouldn't, you really wouldn't even know if you were on public land or not, you know?
1: Yeah. That's, I mean, that's kind of similar to, um, you know, what we have in Northern Pennsylvania. We have about 2 million acres just in Northern Pennsylvania of your traditional public land. That's national forest and state forest. But we also have, a lot of those timber company properties that you know a lot, that isn't i guess well known to people if you're coming from out of state or not but we've always just grown up knowing you know it's it's open to public hunting like you said there's no difference between that and your traditional national forests or you know public hunting grounds it's all all the same just endless timber essentially <laughs> Yeah. So um so that that's where I you know I want to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, when you were saying like most of it is you, the conifer trees and and spruces and and stuff that are there. What what are the these tip what are the deer typically feeding on in in those areas? I know you were saying logging cuts and stuff, but what are what are their traditional, you know, food sources?
0: Well, the the logging creates the browse in the feed and anywhere they log there'll be uh you know various green plants that grow I mean I mean hundreds probably hundreds of different kinds of plants that grow in the skid trails and where the dirt's disturbed and raspberries and and then in the in the in the spruce fir usually there's blueberries under there which the deer don't really eat blueberries but they I'm sure they nip at the bushes, but just a lot of green plants that come up, and then there's the browse. So the logging creates a lot of feed, but but the deer are in places that hasn't been logged for a long time too, and you know they'll be they'll be usually around that edge between the transition of the hardwoods and the softwoods, and they eat things like the mushrooms, there's tons of mushrooms, you know, and they'll be feeding on that. Maple seeds with his you know, it's it's predominantly maple and yellow birch would be our hardwoods in the north. There's white birch and, and poplar too, but you know maples is predominant. And then uh, they feed on the moss on the when the first spruce or fir tree blows over they'll eat that that moss that grows up on the limbs we call it old man's beard because it looks like it's gray and moss they love that you know especially the bucks it's a high nutrition feed you know and later in the season when they're trying to get some feed on they'll go in and one of them blow downs and feed up and down both sides of it smash the limbs off with their horns to get deeper into them and that's the difference in the big woods. Is the feed is everywhere. Basically, it's you can't think about it in terms of there's a bedding area and a feeding area because that just doesn't happen. It's the deer or wanderers, even the does. I mean they, they won't they won't be traveling as big of an area and and they don't travel as far, but they don't necessarily go lay down somewhere. They'll feed and wherever they end up. Want to take a break, they just lay down, you know they get a vantage point and they lay down and get up and start feeding and wandering again and then just lay down. There's just really no there's no rhyme or reason to where they're where they're tra- you know they're not traveling to any particular spot to feed or lay down you know it feeds everywhere
1: yeah i mean that's re- that's what's really interesting about uh you because know, what you were talking about where your hardwoods the kind of hardwoods that you have you know that's the difference between here and there is we have you know even cherry trees that produce mass crops black cherries and you know some oaks that'll produce acorns where it sounds like you're not having any of that even to it's all browse essentially
0: yeah yeah it's all browse you know green plants are browsing in the summer and fall and then you know the maple whips and uh birch whips and stuff like that, you know, in the late fall and the winter and and uh yeah, it's just there's beach there is beech here, but there's not there's not a lot of it and quite frankly the bears get most of the nuts before they ever hit the ground anyway, so the deer aren't relying on beach nuts here. Okay. So uh they do get into uh if we have a mountain ash crop They'll, they like mountain ash berries when they hit the ground there. They'll be, it'll be like them being under apple trees. They'll be eating the berries off the ground and stuff because they're high in carbohydrates. But that's every two or three years there's a bumper crop of them. But they can find them anywhere. It's not like they seek out those foods like they're going to all go to because there's mountain ash in the mountains. They're all going to go there. It's not like that. They just you know, if, if there's mountain ash where they are, they'll eat it, you know?
1: Hmm. So, so with that being said, you know, as far as for you or for your clients, what are you doing to find, uh, the deer and specifically the, the bucks to, to be able to hunt them?
0: You got to learn where the bucks travel and, and, and basically where they travel, they leave their sign and the sign the most important sign is is a signpost rub and I don't think anybody really knew what those were until I wrote my first book because I started looking at these things and I knew they were a different rub than what you would normally see you know it's uh, I call it a common rub the rub that's rubbed out anywhere on any tree and you know then it just heals over and They rub a different one. A signpost rub is actually a scent marking place. So it's a place where bucks travel. And that's the key to it. So I tell people up here, well, probably it's true in most any big woods. If a buck has, I don't know, pick a number. If If he lives in 10 square miles or 20 square miles, it doesn't matter. He's probably only traveling through About 10% of that area, he's not going to be in 20 square miles of territory. He's not going to be in that, cover that whole thing. He's got a way he gets through his territory, and the way to find that is where he lays that sign down, and that's on the signpost rubs.
1: Okay. And do you, do you typically find those signpost rubs in any specific area? Like you, I heard you talking, you said a little bit earlier about, you know, transitions between the, the hardwoods and the softwoods. Is there anything else that, you know, or are you finding those on those transition areas near any sort of terrain features or is, or is it, what are you kind of looking for, for to find those signpost rubs?
0: Well, up here they're made on almost exclusively on a brown ash tree so first you got to learn how to identify a brown ash and if you looked in a tree book it would be called a black ash and it's not a common tree and it grows in wet ground so you can find it anywhere there's water you know along streams spring seeps beaver flowages low ground you can find it in the mountains too. If there's if there's seeps and stuff up wet ground up here, there's a lot of wetlands and wet ground way up in the mountains even, and you'll find brown ash in those places. But it has to have a lot of water to grow, and the bark is kind of corky on it. And I think it holds the scent better, and maybe that's why they choose that tree. So you you learn the tree, identify the tree, and then. It's easier to find the tree than it is to randomly walk through the woods and try to find a signpost rub. You just, I just walk the, the wet, wet ground and wet trickles. And when I find brown ash, I look for the signposts and, and, uh, that's how I find them. Now down your way, you're going to, they're going to be on, if you had signpost rubs, they would be on if you have, uh, hemlock, or red cedar those are down your way would be the probably the two most common ones sometimes white oak uh but you don't have brown ash so it's going to be on something different
1: yeah i i've noticed the hemlocks are the biggest ones where i'm finding the signpost rubs on i just found one uh last weekend i was in the woods and you, you could tell just year after year this hemlock tree was used um you know, for you could just see the year after year of like where the, the bark was pulled away from the rubs and then, you know, partial grown over and then the new rubs hit every year.
0: Yep. Yep. That's it. So once you find them, that's a, that's a key spot where, and a lot of times it's where more than one buck is using one of those signposts. It's like territories overlapping and, uh, Oh, I've got as many as oh five for sure, several times. I know I have a camera I've been putting on a signpost and there's always four or five bucks there. last year there was there was five bucks on it when I picked it up at the end of the season. Two seven pointers, two eight pointers and a nine pointer. All coming to that same signpost. So it's a key, you know, if you've got five bucks that are coming through one spot, uh, it's a pretty good spot, right? I think anybody would agree with that.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And especially in low deer density areas like where you're at.
0: Yeah, that's right. So if you doesn't matter if you're a tracker, a still hunter, or a stand hunter. That's the location. You can go there for any of it. You can go sit over it. You can still hunt through the signpost areas, or you can go there to pick up a track. Key area. That's where, you know, that's where the bucks travel. So that's where you got to go to find where the bucks are. You know. Yeah. And then as you, if you, if you explore your territory here, and you just keep learning the woods, you you'll find more signposts, and then you can almost figure out a pattern to you're not going to pat I don't mean a pattern like you're going to pattern a deer with times and stuff but you you might figure out where a certain buck's territory is if you know he visits one signpost and another and another three four five miles away you kind of get a feel for how he's traveling through his territory you know
1: yeah I've, I've typically found some of those signpost rubs here in Pennsylvania. They seem to always be on like the edge of like those transitions, like you're kind of talking about, but like with, you know, not here, not necessarily in the, the wet areas, but where I've found them is like, say on a, right where the, the last set of the hemlocks are on the edge of say an old clear cut or, you know, or maybe there's a couple of hemlocks inside of that. Old clear cut, a little ways. It seems to be there, kind of on those transition lines. You know, maybe over on a here it's they are typically you know just over the side of the hill, over the top, kind of on that steeper side hill, or or in the in the creek bottoms too. It seems to be a you know a location that that at least I've found them in over the years.
0: Well, they all want to, you know, as a buck gets older, he's he's going to, he's learned to travel in the secure places where there's better cover and, and security. That's just, that's where they travel and that's usually in a transition of hardwood, softwood, or whatever. It's just got more cover there.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you, do you tend to, do you look at any other sign as far as with like, do you look at scrapes at all as anything um, up there?
0: Um, yeah, I look at them, but the only ones that matter, a scrape only matters on a certain year and they're usually like a regular scrape or I call them an annual scrape every year. You know, not an, I mean, an annual scrape, if it it's made every year, those are the important ones. And it's almost the equivalent of a signpost rub right? because bucks, bucks make a scrape in that same spot year after year and there may not even be any does in that area but they're so used to laying a scrape there and sometimes you'll find when the the dirt's poured out it'll be six inches deep like a bowl and the limbs are all snapped off a fir or a spruce or something there and that's like that's another key thing i look for but the other regular scrapes the common ones those are typically made around where the does are that year so if the does are feeding around in a certain cut one year there'll be more scrapes in the in that area but if them does move a half a mile the next year or a mile them scrapes will probably just dry up and they'll make them somewhere else
1: Okay, and so the, or do you think that those the common ones that are around, kind of like the doe or the does are hanging out? Do you think those are more of like a testosterone based scrape? Like they're not they're they're, they're just doing it as they're in the area, not really as any sort of territorial reason.
0: Yeah, they just lay in the they just they do it. It's just a, it's in nature to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Some of them scrapes will make. They may never come back by them again. They just make them because it's in them to make them. And uh, there's another, what I call a pawing, and a lot of people think that's a scrape, but it isn't. A scrape has an overhanging limb that people call it a licking ranch or whatever, but, but, but the bucks will paw a lot. You'll see where they'll walk up through the woods and every 20, 30, 40 yards, they'll paw the ground and People start saying they 20, twenty, thirty scrapes on a ridge. Well, they're not scrapes. They're just uh, horned up buck just kind of traveled down the ridge and pawed the ground up a bunch of places, and that's it.
1: Okay, so uh, so I guess when you when you're finding say these signpost rubs or the the annual type scrapes, and you're you're you know assuming that bucks are traveling through the area year after year. So how are you going about hunting uh, based off that sign?
0: Well, I use them to pick up tracks. I'll go, if there's snow, I'm going to go by the signposts I know in a certain piece of woods I want to hunt. I'm just going to run by them signposts and look for a, a track there. That's my strategy. You know, I just, I know sooner or later there's been a buck by one of them signposts. So I just keep checking them and and I'll find a track. I never go a day without finding a good buck track and uh you know I'm not a sitter so but if you were a sitter, I mean they're excellent places to sit, but I don't sit, so I don't really bother with that but you know uh if it's bare ground and I'm out hunting around, I'll try to keep you know like go from kind of still hunt from. Where I know there's one signpost, and then I'll work my way to the next one, and just kind of like still hunt in between them, you know?
1: Yeah. And okay, so
0: because if you, you know, the key is is you've got to hunt with them deer traveling. So you could randomly walk through this woods up here and never be nowhere near where a deer travels. So I already told you. They use about 10% of the area. The key is, is to find that 10% and spend 90% of your time in the 10% area and 10% of your time in the 90%. You know, in other words, just get through it.
1: Yeah. No, I'm following you there. So like, so when you pick up a, a track and you know, one that you would determine, so how, how are you determining it's a track that's worth following?
0: Uh, how do I determine it? Yeah, it's gotta be big and good dew claws out wider than the print and dragging its feet. Those are the old bucks now i ain't that's me mm-hmm. you know anybody else you know if you wanna just go track a buck then just get on a buck track and go you know yeah so in in the tracks here by the nature of the, the deer we have, see the deer, you have Virginia whitetails down your way and, and those Virginia whitetails are right up into Maine too. It's all, it's the typical, it's the typical white tail. It's most, you know, the most prevalent. But Northern Maine has an, what they call the Northern Borealis whitetail. I read that when I was a kid, Leonard Lee Rue had a book in it. It's about the game animals of North America. And I read that in there that there was twenty-three subspecies of white tailed deer, and the northern borealis whitetail was the largest subspecies because they it's in the boreal forest right up into Quebec and New Brunswick and all that, you know, northern Maine, northern New Hampshire. So it's the largest subspecies, and, and along come that is they have bigger feet. Now you get big, deer, big, heavy deer out in that farm country in Saskatchewan and Alberta and all that that are eating corn in the fields and they get fat and dumpy, but those deer don't have the big feet because I've hunted Northwest Ontario and they don't have the, the tracks like we have here. The biggest tracks are going to be in the Northern boreal forest and they have some of those in the UP of Michigan, Minnesota has it. you know, you'll find those big tracks there because those are boreal forests too. So I always tell people, you know, and it's, I put it in my books, you know, I just kind of a, I throw out there a three inch by three inch track. You know, if it's three inches long, three inches wide in this country, it's probably going to be a 200 pound buck dress, 200 dress, yep. which is 250 on the hoof you know when you go I've hunted in the Adirondacks and these other places you're not going to find a track like that probably so you've got to have a track maybe two and a half inches wide and two and a half long maybe it'll be three inches long but so you've got to figure out what the big tracks are for your specific area you're hunting that's all and 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 I You don't just go by the track. The track is one thing, but any old buck, no matter how big his track is, is going to have, I call it a stance, you could call it a stagger. It's how wide it is from side to side, left to right, you know. And then also, the older bucks are going to be dragging their feet. There's some of the bucks here, they'll be dragging their feet In an inch of snow, if you see where their feet are just dragging in an inch of snow, those are the old, heavy old bucks that are just foot drag, as I call them. You know, that's how they walk. They just drag their feet along. They're old and tired, you know
1: yeah so those those what do you what do you consider for yourself you know an an old buck is there a certain age that you're kind of looking for
0: well yeah you know a, a good old buck you know once they get six and a half you know that's an old buck here you know because they're probably going to be dead by he's 10 you know yeah so yeah it's six and a half you know i've shown them older than that i don't know how old they are i just They used to take teeth out of them years ago here. I've shot some six, six and a half, seven and a half. The oldest one I shot here, he hardly had a tooth in his head. I don't know how old he was, but I would have guessed he was probably 11 or 12 years old, you know? Wow. But, and, and the flip side of that is most places a deer just ain't going to get that old anyways. Yeah. That's why a lot of places you won't find signpost rubs because a deer don't a buck don't live long enough to make a signpost. You know what I mean? He might rub there two or three years and then he's dead. And that's the end of that, you know. But here the most of the bucks here in northern Maine die of old age. They don't hunting pressure doesn't have anything to do with with it.
1: Okay. Yeah. That, that makes, that makes total sense. And, and I wonder, you know, like in in Northern Pennsylvania, I mean, especially when they started putting the antler restrictions on, you started people, you know, had to really identify their targets before they were shooting. And we started getting some older age deer. You know, I, I remember, you know, my dad was telling me when he was younger, you know, two and a half year old deer was an old deer where now we're, we're getting them, you know, quite a bit older. I'd, I'd shot one. that's sitting in my office. I'm sitting here right now. That was aged at eight and a half and we're starting to get more that are hitting, you know, those types of ages here. So that's probably why, you know, you know, from what you're saying there that you're starting to see a little, you know, a little bit more signpost rubs in some of these, you know, really big woods areas, some of the more remote areas that we have here too.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's the equation. They got to live long enough to, to make them
1: yeah okay that 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 makes total sense what do you what do you do as far as identifying you know tracks when there's not any snow are you finding them in those say the scrapes or anything or on the trails or how are you finding them when there's no snow
0: oh yeah yeah i mean yeah if you find a scrape there'll be a track in it but you'll see tracks punched in the lead you know what i mean you can tell a big buck is he's sinks in two three inches in the in the leaves you know it's a big buck you could see it plain as day you know walking down through the leaves that it's a, a big big buck you know
1: yeah yeah that 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 makes sense so okay so say you're um when say you're finding a a track and and maybe this is it'll be easier for you to to tell a story and kind of break it down but you know say you find uh, a track as you go out in the snow or whatever that may be kind of go through your your process there and like i said if it's easier for you to tell a story to be able to do it of a a certain buck you tracked or one of your stories then then go ahead and do that as well
0: you mean what's the process for the day
1: yeah like if you find once you find a track
0: yeah well okay the the process is I have to, I try to figure out how old the track is, you know, is it an hour old or is it 10 hours old? You know, to me, if a track was made in the night before, to me, I call that a fresh track. Might be eight, 10 hours old. It's still to me a fresh track and I get on it. And I just, if it, if I know it's that old, like different ways to tell in the snow, you know, if it's with a temperature, if it's froze up solid, because it's been all night frozen. But I just usually just, I just go along at a fast walk on it, read in the track what he's doing, because usually it's, he's going somewhere, he's walking fast, but, and then uh, I'm just trying to catch up to him, because I mean, a lot of people get on a track and I call it the Elma Fuddit. They just go along and take a step, and they're looking ahead. That buck might be five miles from them, you know. They're never going to catch up to it that way. So I just go what I call just full tilt ahead, my fast walk, until I catch up. And I, I know I catch up for a couple of reasons. Either, the buck is going is always doing He's looking for does. He's grabbing something to eat or he's laying down. That's his whole life. So yeah, I just I know when he's going to lay down because he starts feeding and then he'll wander around and feed. He's going to be laying there. So now I know it's not 100%. Nothing is, but good chance he's laying there pretty handy. So then I'll slow down and try to get a look at him laying down. If I don't, I jump him up and now i got a fresh butt track. And that's just the process. And sometimes you get one the first day and sometimes you get one the last, but you got to just keep repeating the process. It's quite simple, really. You just keep doing it day after day. I tell people if you do it day after day after day and re- and do what you know to do once you learn it, the law of averages is going to catch up to you. And you'll catch that buck in the right place, the right time, and I call it two points connect, and then you get a chance at them. Yeah, and you know, as you get better at it, there's certain things you can do to to up those odds. You know, where you make the most out of your chance, or you know how to you know how to uh, finesse things a little bit to get your chance a little better than just stumbling along, but. That's part of the process of learning.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. As you go, start going through the process, you're going to screw it up a lot more times than it works out. But that's how you learn from it.
0: Sure. It took me seven years to kill my first one tracking. I didn't have anybody to teach me. I didn't. I just stumbled along and did it. Just stumbled along and did it. Saw our tails go. Chased after them did the wrong things, and then I finally, finally figured out, got it figured out, and once I did, it was, seemed to be easy, it was like clockwork, you know, I shot one year after year after year tracking, so.
1: Okay, so. I wrote,
0: I wrote, I wrote my book to help people shorten that learning curve, because seven years was Painful. Yeah. I, I,
1: I can, uh, I can relate to that. When, uh, when I started hunting elk, it took me four years to kill my first elk and it was, uh, it was a learning process.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's always, you know, you always, you always got to learn, but the important thing is, is to be persistent, you know, because most people are going to quit anyways. You know, I've had people, Say, geez, ain't you afraid of teaching all them people how to deer hunt and track? They're going to, there'll be too many people in the woods. I go, no, because they're not going to do it anyway. Only a small percentage of people are going to do it. I don't know what the percentage is. It's 5%, but it's probably not more than 10%. That'll keep doing it. You know, there will always be the ones that go out, give it a go for a day, and then they think it's too hard or it's too cold or whatever it is. And they won't they won't continue with it
1: yeah no that's 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 so true uh and yeah most people aren't gonna because it's gonna require a lot of effort like you said a lot of persistence and continuing to do it which yeah that's that's you're you're counting out a lot of the population right there a lot of the hunters just from that standpoint alone
0: yeah i mean everybody can do it but they won't that's you know what i mean i'm yeah. I don't, I don't eliminate anybody out of it. Any hunter can do it, but most hunters won't. And I, people look at the bucks on my wall and they, they're all, they're amazed about it. But all I did was work harder at it than most people are willing to do. You know, when the, when the, you know, when it was cold and windy and snowing, and raining, whatever it was, I didn't quit. I kept going most people go back the truck and have a coffee and a sandwich. I don't do that. I go in the woods in the morning I come out in the evening that's how I hunt day after day i I hunted that way this year I guided this was my first year guiding again this past fall I had I had uh, five years I didn't guide because uh, when I sold my lodge I had a no compete clause so but anyways I started. I took two hunters, one-on-one hunters, and uh, I took one the first week and then one Thanksgiving week, the first and last week. So, we hunted the first week shot a, shot his buck on uh, Thursday, I guess. And then, so I had a second and third week to hunt, and I, we had snow, and I went day after day and followed bucks that I could never catch up to because we had cold weather and snow that second week and the bucks just traveled because there's no, there's no does in heat so they they just kept traveling looking for them but I went day after day it was zero every day went all day went all day the third week we had some terrible conditions we got a crust crusty snow and stuff went all week then I had my hunt of Thanksgiving week and we hunted hard all week Came close a couple times, didn't get him a buck, and then muzzleloader season was next. Started out muzzleloading, went every day, and finally on Thursday, I couldn't muzzleload a week. I only, they start slowing down, so it's harder to find tracks by then, but Thursday I found a good track, and, and uh, I actually got a shot at him fairly quick and chased him all that day and and I knew he was tired and he wasn't going to go far. I went back, got on his track the next morning and he wasn't three 300 yards from where I left him the evening before and, and uh, I got on him and he had gone about a mile I was feeding and he laid down there for the night but long story short uh, I got on him about 6 Seven in the morning 7 30 and i killed him about 11
1: 30 laying in his bed at i don't know 40 yards something like that okay so when, when you when you are i say on them and you start seeing them you know say wandering back and forth feeding a little bit you know not on a straight path essentially at that point you're you said you're really slowing down you're, you're walking there and, and you shot him right out of his bed
0: yeah, I shot at him uh I had shot at him the day before when I first caught up to him. He was he was going into a uh bunch of spruce blowdowns with that moss on it I was describing to you, the old man's beard. Yep. And I was focused in there. I was coming kind of through some hardwoods, of course where you can see good. And I got focused in there and, and that buck he'd gone in there, but he came back out and there was a little depression in the hardwoods, and there was some, I don't know, some little clump of trees there, but he was actually laying behind that, and I walked right up beside him at 25 yards, and I wasn't even looking there, because his track, I could see his track go out into that other stuff, but he jumped up, and I didn't get a shot until he got out about 75 yards, and I just took a now, he was jumping through an open, and I tried it anyways. And then I jumped him a few times that day, couldn't get a shot. And then I saw him the first time we caught up to him the next morning. I saw him, but couldn't get a shot. And then uh, I saw him a couple more times, and then I finally got a shot at him. He, I see him go. And he stopped about 75, 80 yards out in this real thicket thick whips and stuff in an old old cutting and I fired but the bullet never got there it must have ricocheted somewhere and and then he turned back down and the next time I got him because this one here it's like any of them you know you can sometimes you can figure out little idiosyncrasies they have but this one Every time he was going to lay down, once I had jumped him, he would start dragging his feet. He'd slow right down, and he was dragging his feet, and then he'd lay down. So as soon as he'd start dragging his feet, I'd slow right up and start looking. And That's how I caught him laying down. He he went down through this old skidder trail, through the spruces. When he got down to the end of it, where it opened up, he abruptly turned to the left, So I didn't step out. I just peeked through the spruce limbs and he was laying there looking back, you know, obviously waiting for me to come around the corner and I didn't. I just, I kind of swung my foot back so I could straight, you know, he was on my left side and I'm left handed and I just swung my back foot around and just kind of poked it through the spruce limbs and put it at the base of his neck, let him have it.
1: Huh. So from from beginning to end when you got on his track, how far did he go, do you think?
0: Um I think I figured it was 12 miles. Wow. It was, uh, it was uh 7 I figured it was 7 miles the first day, and I never got on him till 10:30 in the morning. I picked the track up at 10:30, and I left it at three o'clock and he'd gone about seven miles and we had to walk back five to the truck. So we put on 12 miles that day. And then the next morning, I figured he went about five miles before I shot him. And I like I said, I got on it at probably seven thirty, and three hours later, I, I had him.
1: The next morning, did you go right back to where you last left him at? Is that where you started picking up the track again?
0: Yeah, because I knew he was. I usually don't do that. Almost never. It's one of the very few times I've ever done it. And because I knew he wasn't going to go anywhere. He was tired from the rut. and He just wanted to feed and rest. So I I knew he wouldn't go very far in the night. Usually during the regular season when they're looking for does and stuff. There's no sense of going back and getting on the same track because now you're going to walk where he walked all, all night. You know, you might walk 10, 15 miles before you ever catch up to him. Doesn't make much sense, you know?
1: Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So later that's, that all came down at the time because you were saying that was around Thanksgiving.
0: No, that was the first week of December.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. The rut here is the 15th to the 30th of November, basically. You know, there's a few stragglers either side of that. You can mark it on your calendar. That's when it's going to be here.
1: Okay, so that's, yeah, a little bit later than what we're used to here.
0: Yeah, because it has to be later because they have to be born later or they're going to freeze to death in the spring.
1: Yeah, okay, that, that, that definitely makes sense. Uh, All right. So like if you were, say you lost, uh, say, is it actually, if you would tell a story of another scenario where, um, you know, that you, you say you were tracking a buck and, and didn't, you know, get catch up to him that day, or maybe you didn't and didn't get a shot, but you had to come the next day. What, what you did, or, um, it, maybe you went, you know, try to find a totally different track. What, what does that normally look like?
0: Well, usually I just go, I don't, I don't go back. I mean, it's only been a couple of times I've ever gone back and got on the same one again. Mm-hmm. And usually it's muzzleloader season because there ain't any other tracks to find. So you might as well try to get on that one. You know, Can't, they, like I said, they, they're not moving. They, sometimes they'll lay in the same spot for a couple of days. So they're not laying down tracks much anymore by, by early December, you know? Yeah. So I just go out every day, and I drive to where I want to hunt. I strike off into the woods looking for a track. I mean, about as simple as that. I cut across the ridges. I know the signposts there. I head for those and, and uh, just dissect the woods. Usually I'll do it in a big, like when I go in the woods in the morning, even just looking for a track, my plan is, is to make a great big huge circle to a territory i mean it might be a you know it might be a five or ten mile circle for the day but that's what i'm going to do to try to find a track
1: okay and and typically when you go into these spots or they spots that you've been in the past and have d- identified the signposts or the annual scrapes or anything like that is that what is that kind of what you're saying
0: yeah but not always If there's snow on the ground i don't care if i i know the country i'll tell you a pretty good story most people it's kind of funny when people hear the story they just they can't kind of believe it in a way because everybody's everybody's um programmed to think you can't go deer hunting without scouting your area and knowing what's going on in the area and and all of that when i scout an area i'm just trying to figure out if there's some bucks there you know i You know, when I'll try it, I'll look for the signposts and all that, but, but, um, around here where I live, I mean, I've been hunting here for, you know, for almost 40 years. So there ain't any place I haven't been, but no, I don't know. It's been five, six years ago. We were supposed to have snow coming for, for the first day of the season for Monday was supposed to snow on Sunday. So, of course, we're all excited about it, having snow for the beginning of the season. And uh, I'm puttering around doing chores here, and, and it was gray all day, And but we didn't get any snow. And come evening, there was no snow, so I looked at the weather, and it had moved, the storm had moved east, and it had hit over in the eastern part of the state, or the northeast anyways we didn't get any snow here. So I called a I called a friend I know that's kind of more in the northeast part of the state. I'm in the northwest. And he goes, yeah, we got four or five inches and it's still snowing. And that was nine o'clock at night on Sunday night. So I said, well, I guess that's where I got to head over that way. So I get up at three o'clock in the morning, jumped in the truck, And I drove three hours through the woods on gravel roads, and I finally hit snow. And I had it in my mind where I was going to, the general area, I was going to go try because 10 years ago or more, 15 years ago, a guy told me that it was decent deer hunting over there, and there was a deer yard up in this area. So I said, well, I'll go try there. So I drove over there and I actually checked a couple roads on the way to kind of get a feel for the area. Never been there in my life. I mean, I've been by there on a fishing trip, but I've never, ever hunted in that area for anything. And, and uh, so anyways, I, I had this spot I was going to go look at and, uh, I got, I had my Atlas map, you know, that shows you all the logging roads. And, uh, I got back in there and never, never saw a track in the road. And, uh, cause it's, it stopped snowing like later in the night. So they hadn't really had much chance to lay down tracks. And usually earlier, they don't move as much on the first snow anyway, but I, I jumped in the woods at the end of this dead end road and just got in the beginning of this cut found a track half full of snow couldn't tell how big it was so I get on it finally freshened it up and it was just a oh I'd say it was a two and a half year old buck so sometimes I just ding along on those tracks because they might lead you to something better so I just kept puttering along on that track and I jumped him and I saw him and actually took some video footage it was a It was either a six or an eight point. It was kind of a funny looking rack. It kind of went straight up, you know, let that one go, cut back around, headed back to the east, which was my plan. I was going to head east and then swing around to the south and then back to the west. That was my plan for the day, a big loop. So I got another, oh, I don't know how far away I was, maybe a half a mile, come across another track that had only about an inch of snow in it. And it was like, it was dragging his feet a little. I could see it was a better track. And then I came to a scrape he made. So I said, yeah, I'm going to take this one. It looks pretty decent. I knew it wasn't like one of the old monsters, but it was a decent track, you know. But I figured to be a 200-pound buck. So I just started on that one. he went, checked. It was a doe and a, doe and a lamb in the edge of a cot. He went kind of chase them around, left them, made another little scrape, went a ways, hooked his horns on a brown ash tree, and he went into a kind of a fir thicket, spruce and fir, fir in the green growth. He'd come out of kind of some hardwood country, and I pushed through that little thicket, and there's a bed there. First, I thought I had jumped him, but I felt the bed, and it was frozen. I said, huh. So, I had to push through some more fir trees. that was thick in there, and as soon as I did, I could see a, his track went over to a, one of them blown-down spruce with the moss on it, and I could see that he was feeding down it. Well, I put it into stealth mode because I said, he's right here, because The first week is almost the same as the muzzleloader week. They're not, there's no rut. They're just, they're just getting ready. So they're just feeding and they're not traveling as much feeding and laying down. So anyway, I could see he was feeding down. He went around that blowdown. So I was just taking one step at a time. Then I see another bed. I looked over and I could see he laid down again, which is a good sign. They lay down once a little, lay down again. There's a good chance he's, that buck is right there. You know, he's picked a spot. He's going to s- spend some time. You know, So I just was one stepping along at a time on his track and I could see it go out into an old, like an old, I call them a cart road from way back the turn of the century with blowdowns in it. And he headed up that. I was taking one step and I kind of come come behind this spruce tree and I had it I was using it for cover you know there was some spruces along that edge and it opened up and I peeked around it and I could see him laying there about I don't know 35 yards he was laying down facing away from me I could see the back of his head all I could see was the back of his neck and his ears and his horns I said, well, it looks good enough. Put it on the back of his neck and tipped him over. And uh, he'd gone around, fed over to that spot, and he was watching back where he'd come from. He wasn't, you know, I was where he came from, but he was watching his backtrack, but he'd made a loop. So anyways, that's just an example of just like a wing and a prayer, right? Head into the woods and you never know what's going to happen. So, the funny part was, up here in the Northwoods, it's a, called the North Main Woods Association, and you have to check in. There's gates where you check in, and I have a season's pass for it. But anyways, I had I had checked in through the gate at, I think it was, I think it was like about nine o'clock, and I was back, I had... I, shot, I tracked, it was the second buck I saw, killed the buck, dragged it out a half a mile and drove back out to the gate. I think I was back to the gate at one o'clock. So I was four hours from the time I checked into the gate and back out of the gate. And I was hunting about 10 miles from the gate. Sometimes it happens that way. That's it. That's an easy one. And I, like I said, last year's Last year's was a hard one. I went all season and took it down. I shot that buck the next to the last day. a muzzle load of season, so yeah, but you gotta keep going. You just keep going and it swings around your luck swings around different ways,
1: yeah, I think that's I think there's a lot of things to you know learn from that as far as you know it like like you were saying, so you know when it comes to our rifle season here and you know a lot of my listeners being from pennsylvania and and stuff here they you know it will get snow in the rifle season not all the time but you might in the northern part of the state here and you know it don't be deterred just because you never walked the ground before essentially
0: no you don't have to worry about that yeah i've shot probably half of my bucks in places that i hadn't been before I used to go up to Ontario and try new places all the time and pick up a track and go shoot them, you know?
1: Yeah. Huh. That's, that's awesome. So, so now, um, you're, you're doing the, the guide service again. Um, and are you, are you taking in new hunters? Do you normally have returning clientele or how does that work?
0: Yeah, this is a second year and we've got you know, returning clients, uh, and a bunch of new clients come in this year. I've got, uh, I've got the same two, the same, the two clients I guided last year, both rebooked to hunt with me. And then, uh, some of the other ones did with the other guides. So I've got, oh, I've got my team guide, my Big Woods Bucks team. Some of them are guides and And some of them are guiding so and but some of them only want to guide one week some want to guide two weeks so we've got guided hunts and they're either one on one you know one hunter per guide two on one or three on one and then I have an American plan hunt which is meals and lodging and you know the team guys and me we're gonna point you in direction to go try and we sit around the evening around the buy a place and tell stories and question and answer and all that so it's fun that's what we're doing and uh we're staying at my buddy joe cruzy is a team member and he's got a lodge just down the road for me there and i put the people all up at his lodge and we have the meals right there and uh good time.
1: Yeah, that sounds like it anybody, that sounds like it would be a great time.
0: Yeah, if anybody's interested in that, it's they can go on the Big Woods Bucks website and hit the Outfitter tab and look at it and catch up with me. Probably won't be for this year. It's pretty well Oh, this year I do have I got one or two openings. Uh I think there's a couple spots, you know, I can take a few people thanksgiving week and i might have one other hunt you know an american plan hunt for the second week but other than that i'm pretty well filled up
1: oh that's that's great there's always
0: yeah there's always another year
1: yeah definitely and so, uh, I guess with, with with that being said, too, where where can people find your books that that you've written, and you know if if they wanted to purchase them and you know read more details and le- you know learn from more of the stories than you know obviously than we, we covered here just briefly.
0: Yeah, right on the. Every, you can get everything on the website. So it's bigwoodsbucks.com dot com, and we have a store in there with you know the books, DVDs, a bunch of other stuff. We have our own line of wool clothing, and uh, and then we got a merch store where you can get swag, hats, T-shirts. But then uh, we also have, uh, there's a tab in there you'd see that says hunting club, and that's where you'll find my films of my hunts and, and uh, my articles and all that. And there's forums in there for hunters to communicate with each other. So, like we have, I see on there, there's a bunch of guys from different states. Like even, you know, we got, like I said, a contingency from Wisconsin and Michigan, and and they'll correspond with each other. And I can already see, I kind of, I kind of see it, you know, I get uh, notifications when people are posting, but they're trying to connect with each other now through that club and that's a you get 36 bucks a year for that to go on and get all that information you know
1: yeah oh that's that's awesome and i've i was on your website before and then i was on there also earlier today and looking and yeah you got a a bunch of different dvds and and books and everything else you can learn from and that that club is such a you know it's so much useful to be able to be in contact with other people that are either trying to learn it or, you know, have the knowledge and have been doing it. I think that's one of the biggest, one of the questions I get a lot is, you know, I don't, I don't know anybody that likes to hunt this way or wants to do these type of things. You know, that's a great way to be able to meet people that are like-minded.
0: Yeah. And they're doing it. I can see they're doing it a lot and in their, their, uh, talking back and forth they're asking each other's questions i think it's great and they'll ask me questions and i'll i'll go in and chime in but i'm trying not to like overtake it unless they're specifically asking in my opinion you know
1: yeah so
0: they're really communic they're communicating good in there and uh yeah it's pretty good it's pretty cool
1: that is great
0: and then we have we have uh we have our podcast too. I don't know if you've listened to any of ours, but we started that. I didn't even, I didn't even know what a podcast was (laughs) when a couple of the guys said, we're going to do a podcast. And I'm like, what the heck is a podcast? And they, so I said, yeah, all right, we'll do it. So it's actually turned out pretty well. I mean, I, I didn't know what to expect because I didn't know what a podcast was, but, uh, we have a great response. We have, uh, a lot of people listening and commenting and good reviews on what is it, iTunes and all that stuff. You know, like I said, I'm not very techie about getting to it, but I know you can get it anywhere. Probably the same as yours. You yeah. get it in Stitcher and iTunes and Pandora and whatever, you know.
1: Yeah. Yep. I I've I have listened to your podcast before, and it's it's you know one there's a ton of information, but it's also entertaining to be able to listen to the stories and everything else. You have some great guests, and then just with your you know your big woods bucks team there too, just talking back and forth. I think that's that's it's super useful. I know for me, I I listen to you know a few other podcasts when I'm you know driving back and forth to work or whatever that might be. So that's a nice way to be able to get some information as well.
0: Yeah, we're having fun with it. You know, we, we pick on each other and <laughs> tell stories and just be ourselves. We're not trying to be something else. We're trying to be ourselves and, you know, kind of tell people stories and teach people stuff and maybe get them interested in, in trying this. We actually have, I. it's, it's hard to believe, you know, you, you think of your world as small, like, you know, I'm here in Maine and I'm thinking about people here. And I mean, I know like it's a New England thing. And quite frankly, it's about Pennsylvania North that travel uh, most of the people that have always traditionally came to Maine to hunt, you know, even from years ago. But we actually have people around the world listening. And I'm like, I'm thinking, why would people around the world really care much about deer hunting in the Big Woods of Maine? But they do. They actually have a guy coming from Australia on a guided hunt because he wants to learn how to hunt these deer because they have Samba deer in Australia and they get snow in the winter out there. I never knew that.
1: Huh? I I would never have known that either.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's you. You just people from all over the world listen to you and some of them like you you know
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's that's great and that is that is nice i know you're saying like you're not a, a big techie person but it is nice with the way that things are now that you can interact with more people through you know things like the podcast and 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 stuff like that it is it is pretty cool to be able to to do that i know i've met a lot of great people from all over the country and even into Canada and some other different places like that, 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 you know, you always find things in common. I've actually, there's someone who listens to my podcast over in Europe and uh, it's, it's pretty cool to hear they hunt, um, you know, just different types of deer and things there. And it's, it's, it's pretty incredible.
0: Yeah. I had a guy from Sweden asking me about moose hunting Tactics for moose hunt. What we use here, because Sweden it's a big moose hunting place, you know.
1: Huh. Uh, that's cool. But, anyways, Hal, I uh, I really appreciate you coming on and taking some time to, to talk to me here. It's a it's an exciting time of year, and uh, I hope that you have some luck, and I hope that anybody listening here, you know goes on your your website and and you also have an instagram and a facebook page and stuff it's uh just under big woods bucks as well i believe and uh i'll put links in that in the show description here for people to find all that
0: yeah appreciate it
1: awesome well uh again thank you and uh, i hope to talk to you again soon
0: yeah been a good time